Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. I am your host, Ian Boswell. This morning for breakfast is a sweet dessert-like bread pudding. My wife and I had a few orange sweet rolls out on the counter that were starting to get a bit stale. To be honest, I'm not a big fan of anything with kind of that orange citrusy flavor in it, especially when it comes to breads or when you think about dark chocolate with orange, uh, it just doesn't really fit my cup of tea. Same goes for marmalade. I don't love it, but I will use it if it's the only available jelly or jam at a at a hotel continental breakfast, but I much prefer something with berry in it. So we had extra rolls lying around because I didn't eat any. So we pulled the rolls apart, mixed it together with some eggs, some sugar, cream, milk, a little bit of vanilla, and a shot of bourbon. Threw that in the oven, baked it off, and now we have a hot and steamy bread pudding. It's cold outside, so we're going to enjoy this warm and toasty breakfast before I head out for a ride, before Gretchen takes Winston for a walk, and before you listen to today's episode of Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. Just over a year ago, I stepped away from world tour cycling and rode into a new frontier of my career. Last season, Wahoo documented the stories of five athletes who are exploring what the bike means to them and what endurance sports can mean to us all. Season two of Wahoo Frontiers kicks off next week, April 8th at 8 p.m. Eastern over at Wahoo's YouTube channel. This first episode documents the new age training camp shared by myself, Pete Stetna, and Colin Strickland out on the lost coast of Northern California. So let's hear from Pete Stetna about what this training camp meant to him and what the New Age training camp is all about. This embracing this New Age training camp, right? Like the fact that we are all competitors, but we're supporting each other to try and beat each other later in the year, but we're coming together and there's no hiding, there's sharing each other's weaknesses and just we're, we're in this together. You know, it was, it was very much a bonding camp as much as a training camp. In the episode today, I am joined by world-renowned bike fitter and physiotherapist Phil Burt to talk about how we can best set up our bikes, the importance of bike fit, and Phil, of course, shares some tips on how you can best set up your bike to optimize your personal physiology and based off what type of events and goals you have set. Phil spent 12 years at British Cycling as the head physiotherapist. He also spent five years as a consultant for Team Sky. I came across Phil a few times in my career when I was racing at Sky, although I never had a bike fit from him. A lot of his techniques and methods were used when I set up my bike, which is more or less the position I still have today. It's a long one, so let's kick it over to my conversation with Phil Burt talking about the importance of bike fit, not just for going fast, but for being comfortable and for avoiding injuries, let's hear now from Phil Burt. Well, Phil, how is everything over in the UK at the moment? Ah, yes, in the strange times, of course, but um, we we seem to do very well with the vaccine rollout in this country, as I believe you are in the States. And uh, there seems to be light at the end of the tunnel. We're still under our lockdown conditions, but the kids are back at school, which is fantastic and essential, you know. Um, So um, hopefully moving forward. One allowing you a bit more free time to do what you do so well, and that's bike fitting. 
And we've actually, yeah. we've, we've met a couple times. I've never actually received a bike fit from you, but I did actually use your bike fit studio when I was at Team Sky because I was having a, a knee injury and uh, I had to swap back to speed play pedals. So you were aware of me coming up and using your facility to get, to get bike fit. But I'm just curious, how did you get into bike fit and how long have you been doing it for? Uh, yeah, so I'm a physiotherapist uh, by trade, and that's my profession. I've worked in, in various countries, Australia, New Zealand, France before, certainly back in the UK, and I worked in rugby, which is similar to, you know, working in NFL sort of thing. Pretty easy to, when you're in that, those sort of collision sports, just to identify why people need therapy and what, you know, they're running into each other, it's even right in front of your eyes. But when I moved to cycling, in British cycling, between 2006, and I was there for 12 years, it suddenly became very apparent to me that you know certain injuries niggles and so on and so forth were definitely where you're taking a history coming from people changing things you know so for example yourself you know having to ride shimano pedals at team sky just didn't suit your biomechanics and as a physiotherapist you can treat the symptoms forever but unless you get to the cause you can't really solve the puzzle so i became interested in the bike fit because that's the ergonomic interface between human being and machine you know and and ever since then i've been fascinated by it to the point where i've written a fairly successful book on it i then became my skills got involved into other things that we can go on and talk about like you know the secret squirrel club so became involved in almost performance bike fit you know making people optimal aero powerful and so forth so it wasn't just the injury side but basically and i'm just fascinated with people like you who seem to get on with certain types of equipment but not others <laughs> yeah well i mean and it should be noted that you have i mean i don't even you probably know this but how many people who have won gold medals that you've worked with what is the what is the count i mean you've been at british cycling you've you know, done fits for riders at Team Sky, you know, the whole, I mean, the British track team has been extremely successful, but even folks like the Brownlee brothers who have won, you know, Olympic medals in, in triathlon, how many gold medal athletes have you, uh, have you set up on a bike? <laughs> no, I, no, I used to say it was something like 36 gold medals, but if you include Paralympic, it goes for the roof. Cause I, I used to look after the Paralympic team, but you just, I'm going to have to update my, uh, CV, you're right, because we look after British triathlon now. So, so, yeah, the Brownlee brothers and people like that, and that, that's all fantastic. Yeah, it, it and and gives you some kudos, and it, it gave me the opportunity to go anywhere to find out what I needed to find out. But I've got to say, with those guys in, and yourself, you know, it's polishing. It's one, two, three percent that you may be adding, which is really important when you're at the high end of elite sport. It could be the difference between winning and losing gold or bronze. But um, I now, you know, as you know, I left three years ago and I now run a high-end bike fitting service where we look at to be on. I really enjoy working with normal people. And some of those, you can add 20, 30, 40% to their enjoyment, comfort, or uh, goals on a bike. You know, so that's fantastic. Well, there's kind of two topics I want to speak to you about because there are almost, and I'm sure you see this, there's two people come to bike fit. Well, maybe there's three reasons. You know, there's, there's the performance side and people are looking for the aerodynamic advantage or increased power. Then there's the other side of bike fit, which is people want to be comfortable. They, you know, they're new to cycling and they just want to get fit and set up and be able to ride safely and comfortably. And I guess the the third would be, you know, injury prevention or, you know, people have had an injury and they need to adjust something to make sure they don't get injured. So let's start yes. off with, with the performance side, because I know you've worked extensively with, you know, elite athletes. How has, how has, you know, bike fit when it comes to the performance side changed over the years, obviously, you know, the aerodynamics have become incredibly important, but there's, you know, as you would well know, there's a fine balance between still being able to produce power and being aero. You know, it's, it's kind of this constant battle of what's the best 
fit for your ability, but also for the aerodynamics? How is that? How have you seen that change over the years? Yeah, it's a really good, really good question. A really good question. Often people, it's hard to nail down the benefit of bike fit in what we what we're talking about is submax cycling, not maximal. You know, submax cycling is endurance cycling because it's impossible to carry out research really on one intervention and making a difference because there's so many variables. So that's the first thing to say. But then. When you come back to aerodynamics, that's very easy to measure. So that's often where bike fit ends up, as it were, correlated and cited, you know. So if you if me and you go out, if I put you in a different position today and we go out, it's very objectively hard to tell whether that position's better because simply going faster, it might be because of the wind or something like that. So you often have to rely on subjective feedback, which often comes back to comfort and how you feel and so on and so forth. So I think in performance, the way that bike fits really well is it's almost serving aerodynamics. So at my end, um, two points I make there would be that in the end, my skill set in understanding the human body and the interaction between the bike was utilized when we used to go and get the most aerodynamic position. And then it became my job, thrown back to me after winter, I was like, how can they hold that <laughs> sustainably? Because as you say, it's all good being aero, but if you're moving out of that position all the time, every two, three seconds because you're uncomfortable or you can't produce power anymore because your hips are closed or something like that, then that became my role to make the rider adapt or adjust the rest of the bike without destroying the aero position. So, for example, manipulating crank length, that's one reasons why we utilised uh, PhD that Paul Barrett did, you know, our biomechanist at BC, um, where his work sort of um, proved that crank length wasn't really relevant to power unless you went to almost 80 millimeters or 320, you know. So that was a variable that gives you a great parameter to manipulate. As you know, in when you're time trial position, you're so low at the front, your knees are coming up into your chest, breathing becomes difficult, your hips getting so close that you're not really producing effective power throughout the pedal stroke. So being able to string crank length, for example, is really you know, important. That And then you come back to certain things like I always quite often say, well, we're talking about performance, time trial position often starts with saddle choice. So it can be simple as that. If you've got the wrong saddle on your time trial bike and you can't rotate your pelvis forward, it doesn't matter what you do or it doesn't matter whatever else you adjust, you're not going to get flat, you know, a flat back on that bike. So it's interesting now that the other thing I would say about that is in terms of performance, is uh, a lot of people, um, I have this term, you may have heard it about macro absorbers and micro adjusters. And you've probably been in enough teams to recognize that some of the guys, you know, always adjusting something about their bike. And those guys like Jaron Thomas, who literally could ride anything, you know, you give them a child's bike and they go, can't ride it. And it doesn't seem to matter to them. That's an interesting group, if you ask me, because it doesn't mean they're optimal, you know. So sometimes in performance, we, we, we assume that just because somebody's uh, out there and performing really well, that everything is, must be brilliant. But what we what we don't know is if maybe it could be well can that be any better so i think bike fit over the years has changed towards automated motion capture coming in with retool and other things like that you know what i sort of um my stance point is that i think sometimes when if you want to get the best performance for there you have to understand the human being and not just fit to a certain set of numbers that's a normative data range you know so sometimes to get even further in bike fit performance um performance benefits sorry from bike fit you kind of need to understand the person the subtleties about them and things that might work better for them to sit outside the ordinary box of tools sort of thing yeah well so that kind of takes us to kind of the next category of, of people who are you know maybe just recreational riders there you know there's a huge boom of of gravel racing here in the u.s and these events are you know sometimes you think about an event like unbound it's 200 miles you know it takes some people the winter 10 hours other people you know up to 16 17 hours and in a situation like that yes aerodynamics are important but 
you really want to make sure you're comfortable for an event that takes that long. What do you, yeah. what are the kind of the most common mistakes you see from the average recreational rider that comes in, you know, and does their first bike fit with you? What are the, some of the kind of the key things that you consistently see people are, are doing wrong when they're setting up their bike either by themselves, or maybe they've had a, you know, a bike fit five years ago, but you know, our bodies change over time as well. So it's, you know, it's important to do a bike fit more regularly than, than people think, because we do change, you know, muscles get tighter, we grow, we, you know, shrink, we get injuries, yeah. you know, what are the, the common mistakes you see people when they bring their bike into you? Right. Uh, very good point. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're adaptable and the bike's adjustable. And unfortunately through life, we get a little bit less adaptable as we get older. I'm especially true of that at the moment, but so you're right. You do have to think what uh, am I going to, am I going to bend to the bike or does the bike have to bend to me? I see two, two, I'll tell you the most common things I see mistake there. And you're absolutely right. It's the same in this country in Europe, but there is an absolute thirst for going longer and further in these events, aren't they? Everybody's doing longer and better things. And, and, and at that point, I, I talk about the three pillars of bike fit. So you've got power is one, one pillar, aerodynamics is one, and comfort or stroke sustainability is the other one. And Dave Bell said, never let me say comfort because he said that he paid you guys too much money to be comfortable. So but sustainability, <laughs> sustainability is important because you have to be able to sustain the position. And I think some people get that, that, that if you're doing a, if you're doing a, a four-minute team pursuit, then, of course, power and aero are everything because it doesn't really matter if it's not comfortable. It's only lasting four minutes. You know? So the, the pillars on those are massive and comfort is a is it hardly registering on the graph, on the bar chart. But for most people, the most common I see is they put too much in the power and aerodynamics without thinking about the sustainability. So you're going 200K. The first thing is you want to complete that. So, yeah, you're right. You have to produce some power to complete it. The more aero you are, the quicker you might get to the end. But there's that sweet spot, isn't there, where too much aero will end up with you breaking down and being uncomfortable. And I think people get the, the size of which one they spars or pillars they should invest more in, especially. And so the most common mistake I see is in you, a professional bike rider. So you spent your whole life riding a bike and you have molded your body to riding a bike. Now, you love another life now, and you know how much human beings actually just sit down and do nothing, you know? So the modern world teaches us to sit at computers, basically, these days, mostly. Well, obviously, some people have manual jobs still and stuff. But what we don't do, what a lot of people do, is make a mistake of trying to take uh, the posturing position of their work, and, and then they go and ride a bike at a weekend, and they don't give themselves any chance to transition between the two. So if you do, if you sit at a, a computer for 35 hours a week, it's very hard to ride like Mark Cavendish at the weekend, you know, completely slammed down at the front. It might be a great position performance-wise, but it isn't going to go. So I often bring it back to sort of goal-centered bike fit. And I, if you come in for a fit with me, we'll spend 20 minutes to half an hour talking about your goal. And in those 20, 30 minutes is all the answers I need normally because it's always in the history. You know, I've got this problem, I've got that. What am I and we, and you, you can't have a successful bike unless you tailor it to the goal. So the most common mistake I see is, is also people on the other side of that is, um, I don't know what, people sitting too low and too far back. And there seems to be a real trend that that's where you go if you have problems. But you do have to, there is an element where we do have to learn how to pedal powerfully. And power and pedaling is with saddle height and forward you know so but it's how you wrap all that up together you know and i think it's so multifactorial that 
often all we're really doing is I'd say helping people out this sort of rabbit hole of changes that they've gone down where you change one thing and that seems to work, but then you've changed something else or something else isn't working. So that's why I love it. It's a beautiful mosaic or puzzle thing to put together. But so, but yeah, in answer to your most common mistakes I see is trying to look like a pro without having the ability to look like a pro musculoskeletally or really backing things off so much that they've compromised themselves beyond belief. Well, and that kind of leads us to perfectly to the to the final kind of categories and that's injury i mean obviously the most common injuries you know just of, of overuse and cycling you know knees back seem to be yeah. kind of the the big ones what's yeah. what are the best ways to kind of avoid you know especially knee injury that seems to be the most common in overuse injury yeah. in, in cycling what are the what are the recommended tips when someone comes in and just has a a nagging knee pain that just doesn't seem to go away. Well, the first thing to state is that it's a real oxymoron that you're absolutely right in um, knee injuries are the most common cycling injury, and yet cycling is really good for knees. <laughs> so the first thing anyone does when they come off a, a knee operation hospital is they'll get on a static bike. They don't go running, do they? So in the right position, I will boldly say that I think I can get anybody riding a bike, no matter how bad your knee is normally, because it's good for the knee in the end. It just needs to have the right environment, you know. This is what we see in the clinic as well, as a transition of people moving away from sports involved running, you know, triathlon and Ironman, when you can't do that anymore, sadly, maybe because of some wear and tear in joints like knees, people still can carry on their cycling, you know. So that's great. You can see people cycling to the 70s and 80s. Common sort of rules of thumb tips for me are you get a knee pain normally due to two or three reasons, too high, or too low or too far forward on the bike. So we can sort the too far forward one out straight away. Just move your cleats all the way back. There is no performance benefit in submax cycling to having your cleats forward, all right? So move them back. And if you look at triathlon and Ironman, the arch cleat debate is raging and stuff like that. But in my experience, if you move the cleats back, that basically protects your knee by making sure that it's not coming too far forward on your foot. Or an analogy would be in a gym lunging massively forward, you know, and taking your knee way beyond your foot. It produces more telephone compressing forces and can be a common reason. The second thing is sitting too low will always compress the kneecap. So don't often play. If you can put your bike on a turbo and just play around with your saddle height and see what feels more comfortable and better. It's often more saddle height. People are scared to put the saddle up, but the only problems, with, the only way you're going to get, get that too high is when you're going to start to feel it at the back of your, you know, your knee on your hamstring, pull it up. But I find people are rarely sitting anywhere near too high. The only people who normally sit too high I see a time trialist, um, you know, in extremely aggressive positions, but it's far less common than sitting too low. So I'd encourage people to put their saddle up. And the second thing is certain people have biomechanical issues. You'll recognize this in yourself in. If you walk like a duck, for example, and you walk with your toes turned out and your heels in, and you go on a almost fixed cleat system <laughs> at the front, say Shimano or look, and you end up with knee pain, it's almost certainly down to the fact that your foot can't go where it wants to. And those forces get passed up to the knee. Um, and that's why I'm a massive fan of speed play pedals, uh, because basically they are the most adjustable and they allow you to find your, what I call preferred movement pathway, you know? So it's a bit of a, people talk about coaching, pedaling and so on and so forth. It's a bit of a mis misnomer. We walk on bikes basically. So, and walking is 99% of what we do on, on, on earth. So, even if you cycle hours and hours a week, it's still not a massive percentage. So walking is the biomechanics we take onto there. And sometimes we have to accommodate that. So those are the three things really make really cleats backwards, see if it solves it. Play around with your saddle height and fore aft on the saddle as well, of course, because that'll affect where you are and there. So and then uh, lastly, if it's not working, maybe it's the rock, maybe your pedal system and how much float you've got and where you've got it. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's I've been a lifelong Speedplay user, and I I tried to adopt another pedal system, and yeah, very quickly I I ran into this issue that that you had mentioned because also my biomechanically, my right heel comes in more than than my left, and it was just with another pedal system which was too complicated, and Speedplay allowed me to, you know, really adapt my position to what you know my body allowed. And it's kind of, it's yeah. one thing that you probably see that's so unique in in cycling, especially cyclists at an elite level, is you've spent so much time pedaling in the same position, the same stroke. It's very hard. It almost becomes ingrained. And it's very hard to change that after you've done, you know, goodness, 20 million pedal strokes. It's hard to then have someone come and say like, all right, why don't you try and do this? Because it's such an ingrained, <laughs> you know, muscle memory pattern. Do you do you see that as well? Yeah. I mean, making huge changes oh, yeah. is are almost impossible. I completely agree. I mean, I think we're very arrogant as human beings sometimes thinking about how much control we have over things. And I'm, I'm so I can speak from a vast background experience of that because I'm a physiotherapist. So often I will try and the beauty of working in elite sports, you can spend hours with people, you know, and, and trying to change things both manually by you know, manipulation and massage and strip out and acupuncture and all these sort of things and then putting in the conditioning to change things but i can tell you now you know your biomechanics is your biomechanics your genetics is genetics and you're not changing that you know you can't put those those hard things and yeah some things we can you know make better add strength in certain some place and somewhere but what i've learned is that um the amount of time and energy it takes to adapt you it's disproportionate to the amount of time, it to, uh, amount of the benefit you can get from simply putting you in a better environment to work in, if that makes sense. So, yeah, that's where the bang for the buck comes through. So, it's, it, it would be impossible to retrain the way you pedal, for example. It's just you, you are going to do it the way you do it. You can't think about it, you know, it just happens and it is what the way you do it. So, you the much better thing to do, if you ask me, is to house it. Of course, there are always things you can do. And I imagine you, with your biomechanics, always put some effort into, for example, foam rolling your ITV, you know, and making sure that your glutes were activated when they could be and all that sort of thing. But in my opinion, that's not enough sometimes to shift the needle over to comfort and performance and, and so on and so on. So it's good sort of like daily practices and all and definitely help, but it's not the game changer quite often, is it? No. Yeah. And, that, and that's one thing that I've, you know, a little tip for anyone listening is whenever I've had a knee injury, I've always spent an extensive amount of time foam rolling my IT band, but also sitting on a a ball in my glute because it seems that my <laughs> a lot of times that my glute just wasn't firing and then my knee is not yeah. tracking correctly and yeah so if you do have a knee injury you know make sure you have a proper bike fit and yeah spend some time rolling yeah. rolling things out well i was i was curious about you know especially when we're you know we're talking about races people doing these long distance races especially when they're they're off road how much consideration do you take into a bike fit when it comes to handling especially you think about you know someone mountain biking or or gravel racing where you know the the technical side is is also important and you have to be able to handle your bike and that's where you know maybe your arrow but if you can't make it down a, a technical descent you know you're yeah. <laughs> you're kind of out of luck so how much do you yeah. do you kind of focus on the actual kind of practical side of, of you know being able to handle the bike as well it all depends if that's part of the goal of the bike fit. That, that, that absolutely. And you, so let's take it. Let's assume it is. Yes, yeah, someone says I want to be. Then the fundamentals are first of all making sure that the person hasn't got 
too too much weight too far forward on the bike. So basically, I say if you're going shorter than a ninety stem, your frame's too big for you. If you go more than one forty, it's too small for you. Now, more than one forty, you're getting really twitchy there. I don't know if you've ever been on that in on a race bike, but it, you know, your weight in front of the front axle of the front wheel on a road bike, so it gets very any small changes become very big changes in the actual about too far back and it's too wishy washy and doesn't t- doesn't turn quick enough. So those are your very basic rule of thumb there. So you want to be somewhere between ninety and one forty should be a good balanced place having said that i think in gravel racing and therefore and road racing to some respect um the center of gravity of you as a whole you know is important because if you've got too much weight on the front of the bike then handling is going to be harder again it's having that sweet spot where you've got enough weight you know you're supporting yourself on the saddle enough to, to be able to pedal hard but you can turn the bike um because you haven't got too much weight on there but you're not too far back so it feels like it, you're too you're not connected with it you know so is that that you're absolutely right and with the i, I agree with the advent of um gravel racing um you've seen bike geometries are changing aren't they to accommodate that um and then I think what you, you have responsibility as a rider to do or a biker is to get, I think probably saddle for aft and height position is going to be quite often a common mistake you said earlier. And I see people come in and they think that their bike's too big for them or they're saying the handling's not accurate. And it's just literally they're sitting too far back and too low. And of course, people often forget that reach to the handlebars is, you know, you could have the ideal stem and handlebar width on, but if you, if you, if you saddles all the way back on the rest, then it's going to be very hard to get to that. So, it's always important to consider those things. And handlebar whips a real easy one, for example. Um, amongst, you know, we have masses of technology within my um, clinic lab, you know, that we bring to use to help diagnose and understand and shine a light in the cave of darkness, which is somebody's problem. But I just use a big orange stick to determine ideal handlebar width. Because if you look in the mirror, your handlebars, your hands, when they're on the hood, should be in line with your shoulder. And if they're outside that or inside that, then your handlebars are too wide or too narrow. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's something that I've always, you know, done as well. It's just even with a with a broomstick, just figured out the the width yeah. of my kind of shoulders and then run it down to my hands. You're going to have a tough battle trying to convince mountain bikers who are running ridiculously wide wide handlebars to to agree with that. But um, yeah, I still I still run my mountain bike yeah. bars narrow as well. Yeah, that's true. And an interesting point about mountain biking there is that, you know, I work with, I've worked with Retool for over 10 years now, you know, since, and um, one of the world's best bike fears, Todd Carver there, you know, um, you, I think you might have bumped into him at Sky, but uh, he was, he's a mountain biker, but even he says he's not that comfortable doing mountain bike fit now because it's, that, that sport has changed so much in the last 10 years, hasn't it? In terms of the shorter stem, the longer wheelbase to enjoy, for people to enjoy descending, you know, and drop a seat post. It's just crazy how mountain bike fit 10 years ago just doesn't look anything like it does now. Yeah, I went to um, some local trails here last summer and all of a sudden, no mountain bikers are using clip-in pedals. They all have flat pedals. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> it's it's changed a lot. <laughs> but um, yeah. when, you mentioned crank length earlier, and that's an interesting topic because I know for a while there was a lot of debate around, you know, do you go longer? Do you go shorter? You know, maybe do you change cranks for different events? But you mentioned a, a study that was done, and I I think I'd heard of that about that at, at Team Sky where they didn't find any significant difference between, you know, the standard crank lengths, you know, maybe people on the track are running 165 and maybe at the most 175 or 177.5. So it's true that there's no information that shows that the power difference is any different between those lengths. 
No, exactly. Yeah, and, it, and for some reason, people are really, really slow to come onto this. But we've been using it for ages, both for injury comfort, but also for performance, because it helps realise really good aero positions. So Paul Barrett did his PhD. He's now the head of performance at Team Ineos, a really good friend of mine and colleague. And his PhD, when I first saw him, he was doing it in 2006 with James Martin, who's an American guy out west in America. He's done loads of cycling research. It's solidly there now. You have to go as low as 80 or as high as 320 millimetres for crank lamp to adversely affect your power in sub-maxal cycling. But sub-max cycling is what we, all us guys do. The only time crank lamp is relevant uh, outside those ranges is in maximal cycling, but that is literally like the first two revolutions of a team sprint or team pursuit start, yeah? So when cadence is very, very slow and the forces are very high, crank length becomes apparent there. But we're, we're suckled on this nipple of information throughout our lives, aren't they? If you're a bigger guy, you should be on 175, 177 half cranks, and yet there is no reason to be that. So given that's, given that's the case and you accept that, and believe you me, you should do, because I've helped people win Olympic medals World, world record times at times and stuff like it, and solved so many people's issues um, all the way to saddle discomfort can be helped by, you know, what crank things are The mistake a lot of people find is that, you know, if some of your listeners out there are going, you know what, I really struggle with my cadence. I know everyone tells me I should pedal faster. Most common cause of that is you've bought a, a 54, 56 frame. You've got one, seven, two and a half crank on there, but you're relatively short in the leg. And that's a huge circle for you to pedal. So the way I convince people of this in is that if I put a one meter high gym box in front of you right now, yeah, if we were in the room together, or a four inch step and said, I want you to jump on one of those a hundred times, I'll give you a hundred dollars either way. Which one would you choose? Probably the four inch <laughs> step. Um, and that and that is crank lift. <laughs> That's it. Um, to give you an idea of how even very good people can benefit from it, Bradley Wiggins, before he attempted his hour record in 2015, he was on 177 and a half and heard the talk that we were giving to the Team Pursuers GB that for Rio, we were going to go down to 165, you know, because you have to educate people around the sea and make sure they know the reasons why and make sure they're comfortable. It's their positions, their bike. And he heard this and he came across and said, do you think I should do that? And we said, well, yeah, but in little bits. But tickled Brad in his style, dropped it seven and a half mil straight down to 170, took 30 mil out of the front of his time trial bike, dropped it 30 mil at the front and was apparently somewhere between the region of two and three and a half percent better CVA. Now, that's a man who'd already won the Tour de France and you wouldn't say his position was bad. But it means you can always eternally improve, you know. Um, and crank length allowed him to do that because he was all of a sudden allowed to rotate his pelvis a bit further forward without closing his hip up, you know, which allows you to get into that incredibly low position at the front. So, yeah, crank length for me, I utilize it these days, not so much for performance reasons, but enabling people to who've got maybe some wear and tear on their bodies or um, it's great as well for asymmetries you know so you, we often talk about leg length don't we in in, in, in cycling so a lot of listeners might be told oh well i get knee pain on one side or sarasol on one side and quite often might get the diagnosis that they may have one leg longer than the other whether it be functional or actual and we often use build-ups and things like that to try and rectify and solve the problem but of course crank length is a really good tool to utilize with that because if you shrink the challenge then the problem or the asymmetry isn't 
isn't amplified as much. So that can be a real game changer for some people. Yeah, well, I, I actually did change my crank length, I think maybe my third or fourth year at, at Team Sky because I, I did hear this study. So I went from, I was on 175 my whole career and I dropped down to 172.5. And there was actually, unfortunately, the mechanics had, when they were swapping over my cranks, I had one side with 175 and the other side with 172.5. And <laughs> I didn't, I mean, I, to be honest, we went and did a power test up Sokolobra and I didn't notice until the next day because, you know, it was, it was a new crank anyways. But, you know, when we are talking, you know, these are millimeters. It's 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 very unnoticeable, you know, but you think about the the difference in, you know, going from 177s to, you know, 165s, I mean, that's a huge change. So do you more, so, I mean, I guess you're, what you're saying is there's no difference in power, but you would recommend going to a shorter crank for improved cadence, reduced injury, I guess, less load, and also the, the aerodynamic benefit of, of running a lower, lower crank length. Yeah, 100%. If, if you think about it, why pedal a bigger circle? It'll decrease the kinematic load on your joints, you know? So for anybody who's maybe had knee pain, worried about or doing more and more miles. It makes sense. And I I go big. I go 165, 160. And, you know, one golden rule I have is if you've got two bikes, a road bike and a time trial, your, your time trial bike should always be five mil lower than your road bike. But that's just my rule that seems to work, you know. Um, but I think, you, yeah, go big. The, the only thing it changes is it changes your gearing. So if we had you sat on the bike now in one seven two and a half cranks on, uh, you're in the bottom rung of the, on the back cassette, you know. If we then drop your crank length down all you do is your cadence goes up doesn't it in the same gear so what you people have to do is just correct their gearing a little bit but it, i've not met anybody yet who has had to change the whole change set you know to accommodate that because not many of us sit in the hardest gears all day long so it's um that's what it is yeah well i was going to ask you about you know using a different fit for for different events outside of you know running a, a shorter crank length on a tt bike are there any other changes that you recommend people making for for different events you know whether i mean the difference between i guess you know a road and a gravel bike and you know tt bikes are obviously extremely different but you know even the length of the event i i had heard a rumor a while back that alejandro valverde ran different crank lengths depending on the stage of the race just because you know if there's more climbing maybe he would run i mean he tends to kind of mash his gears but he'd run a slightly you know bigger gear than if it was more of a sprint, you'd run slightly shorter cranks. Is this something you've you've come across where people actually changing bike fit or crank length for specific stages just in one discipline, like just in a road race? No, I'm not. I've not heard of that before, but I think it makes sense if you, if you ask me. It's, it's that whole thing about, is there a better climbing position than an ascending position? Well, of course there is, but you can't, not many people are going to change bike every time they get to some other, you know, there's, they are doing it. So it's normally a uh, an accommodation between the two. I mean, the, your answer to that question in some ways is in, is in there in those time trials where there's a significant uphill bit in it sometimes and they'll ride the first bit on a road bike and then it's worth the time swapping over to the time trial bike. If it's worth it to do that, say, in the Tour de France, then there's your answer about what, how important position is uh, potentially. But I've not heard of people running different crank lengths for different stages, but given what I just said about gearing, and cadence then it makes sense maybe you know, to, for everybody else i think the biggest thing you often should change is if you're time trialing i think saddle choice is very different because you tend to if you're in a good time trial position you're rotated forward um and that means you're in your pubic rami not in your sit bones anymore so saddle width and the type of saddle becomes really important it's why you see ism or the demo saddle you know split nose 50% of people are Kona on that saddle because it just generally supports those pubic right better. It's not for everybody, but I think saddle choice becomes quite important, you know, in those sort of uh, events. And that's, um, 
evidence, I think, by seeing the rise of short nose saddles. Which are, do you have you have you adopted any of those in for when you're road riding? Yeah, no? on my on my time trial bike for sure. Yeah, I adopted that yeah. pretty quickly just because you know. And that is something I was going to ask you about is the the rules that yeah. the UCI implement on yeah. bike fit is probably your biggest yeah. nightmare because, you know, you have people of different <laughs> biomechanical makeup and all of a sudden they're forced in, yeah. in this box, essentially. Is that something you, yeah. I mean, if, yeah. if you were in charge of the UCI, would you do away with that rule? Well, you're absolutely right. That was, that was my life at the end. Is getting around the five behind rule with people like you. <laughs> but we've only got us Brits have only got ourselves to blame for that because they all came in after Gray and Obrey and Chris Borman with a Superman position, you know. So those rules exist and keep cycling looking like cycling. But we did actually go and challenge the UCI on the saddle tilt rule back in 2015 because you have this rule that you can have it more than two degrees nose down. And we want to challenge that because saddle tilt makes a, a really big difference to comfort, especially in time trial position. And a lot of people were always scared of going any, anything away from flat, really, just in case a commissioner ruled it, you know, it was measured inaccurately, you know, and they had to change the saddle just before. So we went and challenged it with evidence that saddles could, and they couldn't really tell us why they had the rule. And I told them to get ready to be sued then by somebody if they ended their career through saddle and promptly changed the rules. So I think it's like you can take it up to nine now, which nobody ever would do. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, those those rules I spent most of my life trying to get around. And that's why, interestingly, most short pros use short nose saddles is, of course, what that allows you to do is get the saddle much further forward effectively. Um, so if you'd had a you know, typical saddle like an Arioni, 30 centimeters long, and you're up at five behind the UCI limit, then you haven't really got the bit of the saddle that you want where you want it. So short saddles have been adopted by pros for those sort of reasons. The interesting thing I find though is I don't see that many pros using them in road racing because a pro tends to need a, a bit uh, a bit of a longer saddle because you need it for those different positions that you're riding, you know, uphill, downhill, on the river. Where but I think short nose saddles work really well and been accepted and adopted, we know well by the general public because get it in the right place and it really takes out the science of where to sit, doesn't it? Because there's only one place to sit. <laughs> well, I mean, Garrett Thomas runs an incredibly long saddle, but he only uses about the first two centimeters of it. He's always sitting <laughs> on the absolute I've tip of his saddle. I've literally talked about that for three days in a row. <laughs> Did some filming yesterday in a documentary and someone said exactly the same. Yeah, he, he just rides. God, yeah. I don't know if that's um, his team pursuing history or what, but you're right. He uses... Literally the front third of that Arioni, doesn't he? That's it. Yeah. Always. He's well, always on it. I'm sure you're doing, you know, a lot of research and kind of, you know, you're constantly learning bike fits, constantly evolving and changing. Are there any changes you see in the future coming to bike fit, whether it's, you know, I mean, especially when you look you look at time trial positions, they're constantly changing. But what's kind of the the future of bike fit and you know, making sure that people are I guess more that, you know, the general public is is optimized when they when they jump on a bike. Are there any any tech things coming out or any kind of new frontiers? Yeah, I think the next advancement will probably become in, uh, so at the moment, what you've got in history of bifit, you've got, you've got your observational bifit, somebody looking at you, change this, change that, rules of thumb, your goniometers, knee extension angles, plumb lines. And then, of course, we went for the big revolution where sort of retail brought this in. There's other systems now, of course, where we got sort of like wireless motion capture, but even that's on a static bike. So if you come in for a bike with me and it, the bike is stationary, it's in a lab, it's not you riding out in the hills after two hours. So what we do at the moment is I, I by default, just doing a lot of it, I've become good at extrapolating what that looks like and what it needs to move to, to be successful. But I think the next advancement, and I've been working with a few companies on this, but it's, it's very problematic. It's probably, you know, uh, 
taking the things that are in everybody's phone these days, you know, inertial motor, motor units, which tell us where the phone is, all the tilt, 3D angles, and so on and so forth. These inertial motor units, if you can get them into onto people and they go out for a ride, so we put some little um, dots on you, you know, that are communicating back to some wireless sort of hub. That's, I think, the, the real-time bike fit. That's going to be the next game changer, if you ask me. It'd be, wouldn't it be great if you came in for a bike fit with me and I said, right, I just wanted to wear these things for the next two weeks and we got all the average data back and we could see how you adapted to that position and what was happening, what was better, what was worse. You know, That would be, for me, I think that's coming You know, because it's, it's getting there. Other ways companies are tackling that is almost so we in the biking world you get taught some it's not really a profession anyone can do it you know there are different levels a retail fit for example it's just a measuring tape so one retail fit might well be say it's all in the eyes of the person interpreting the data so some people are trying to extract that let's reel that back now and almost not fitting to numbers but having almost best practice and maybe using artificial intelligence you know ai learning to understand okay if a person has these sort of set of measurements and this is their type of riding they want to do. This position is the most successful. So I think we're big data and big capture. As per usual with big data, and what you often see is that people often capture loads of data, but it, it's it's what it means. It's what what does that mean? What does that help you with? Because it's got to. You don't want to be a solution looking for a problem. <laughs> it's got to got to be something that's tangible and, bene- and, and benefits the rider. So I think those are the two directions you'll see Bikefit pushing in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was gonna ask as well. Like, how often would you recommend people getting a bike fit? You know, obviously, especially this day and age. Again, people are buying different bikes. Ge- geometry's changed. But even you know that aside, would you recommend people getting a new bike fit? every season because you know as you said our bodies change over time what's the kind of the recommended timeline of, of bike fit oh that's a, that's a really I, of course everyone would expect me to say um every year wouldn't they but i often say quite controversial thing which is i don't think everybody needs a bike fit because i know some people who, who are just so brilliant at adapting with their environment they can probably set up themselves and uh, they'll get somewhere close to what their optimal window is so we often talk about the talk about the window by fit there is no one position but there's a window some of those windows some people are much smaller than other people so if you're one of those people and as you say, we age, we change, you might have to have a bike fit more often. But I think once you get your a position, certain fundamentals of it sorted out, for example, saddle high, saddle setback, saddle tilt, the rest of it becomes fairly fluid and adapts around that. So I'd say if you get a good, what you want is a, a good diagnosis, good bike fit, and you've got your starting position. And from there, it might be every couple of two, three years, you, you might go in and say, look, uh, uh, but the thing is, we, all, we as we change bikes, we often bike replication in is, an, is a completely different thing to bike fit. So there's another reason for bike fit is all bikes in the world are measured in different ways. And I could put you on a 56 specialized and a 50, 56 giant, and it just feels like a totally different position because of the way it's laid up, the geometry, the way they measure it. So a lot of people sometimes, they just need a new bike fit when they buy a new bike because you may remember, and you've been in the peloton long enough, but uh, I can take you to the back of the Tour de France depart and I'll show you two riders arguing with mechanics so that isn't their position because it's hard to get it sometimes exactly right isn't it yeah replicating position across and that's just on the same bikes never mind if you're at home and you've got a gravel bike a road bike and, and there's certain things in those that should be constant you know and, and absolutely the same certain things different but um getting that spot on sometimes I think what bike fit enables you to do what bike fit should we, we, we should enable you to objectively realize your best position and 
I only do two of them a day, Ian, because I spend a lot of time talking and educating. Because I really, I don't think we should, I often say we're not making any changes unless you want to make them, you understand why you're making them. So, um, and that was something I became a little bit annoyed with at my end of my time at British Cycling was that some of the younger kids coming through just didn't know what their position was. And I thought, well, this is your tool. This is your business this is where you, you should understand this you understand what it is so you can check it it's not a mechanic's fault if your sound hurts and right it's yours you should know it you should be checking it you should be understanding it it's your it's your career it's your machine so i, I do think people should if you're getting into cycling should understand their bodies well understand the bike well and then they're going to be happier you know and probably be able to buy better bikes and better things so if i if i was sticking my gun to my head i'd say i think you should have a bike fit and the really smart people in are, are what i see and i see more people doing this they've been they might be new to cycling but sometimes you see people who've been cycling for years and they've come in they've got a bit of money and they want to buy the new really nice machine this is the best bike they're ever going to buy and they come in for the bike fit before they buy it because what we can do is measure up on their buying and say okay ideally this would be this, this, and this. And you know what? Just specking what we just talked about there, the crank length, it doesn't cost them to change it after they bought the brand new bike. So really smart people, I think, go for a bike fit before they buy the next bike. That's actually a really good point. You know, before you drop, you know, five or 10 grand on a, on a new bike, make sure that, you know, you're buying actually what you get rather than buying a bike and then taking it to get fit and realizing you need, you know, different width bars and cranks and pedals and saddle. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could be a real, a real money saver in the end. Exactly. And especially in the world now where we exist with online bikes, where you can't even go somewhere and sit on one. Yeah, so your you, you likes a Canyon and so forth. It's fantastic. They have a great value direct to the customer, but you can't you can't go and try one. So they're literally plucking out the air, you know, off, off a website. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Before you drop that money, the smart money is to invest a little bit of money. So the rest of the money is really making you sense. So I reckon you save all the money back on a bike fit before you drop in five, ten grand on a bike easily in the bike fit by at least making it outright more often than not you're gonna end up changing something yeah and that's that's something that i've definitely found over the years is once you but once you do have a fit it tends to you know i guess until something happens you know injury or or age you know you do kind of have this like i said this this window and i guess i would tend to be kind of a a macro absorber um i definitely had teammates i'm thinking most in particular nicholas roach who changed his cleat every single time we stopped on a ride he would you know carry around a, a five mil and a job. i'm like man you like you've been pro for i don't know how long you know 10 15 years and you're still messing with your cleat yeah. and it just it, it's so funny to see that you know someone at his yeah. level who's been so successful still hasn't found his ideal yeah. position yeah and we you're so true i remember lars nordag at sky he really annoyed the mechanics they said oh phil can you do a bike fit because he just constantly changes his saddle height but so i had a chat with him though just sit down and chat and he just said so why, why do you do this and he just goes well if i just put my saddle up you know three or four mil one day um the next day my legs don't feel quite as tight because he's using a slightly different bit and then he'll put it down six mil so he's going for it and i go okay but he, he he knew where his anchor point was so i said well as long as we define what that is and you're we set the boundaries you're allowed to change it this much up and down but it always has to be anchored to this point that's not that's not a problem but i think some of the micro adjusting people they just end up changing too many things and too many things and lose where they're at you know but i suppose i came to think well a little bit of micro adjusting is just if that's what it's for you know just feeling different and in, feel better then what why should we not allow that as long as you know where like you just said your window is and your anchor point yeah well that's actually one thing that i always notice especially when you go from your your home training bike to your race bike and your race bike's you know much newer gets much less miles on it and especially probably you know the saddle's not as broken in you know the bar tape is is new it, it always felt slightly different but for me personally it felt nice in a and different in a good way. I felt like, oh, it's like, it's just, it's similar, but it's just different enough probably because the saddle wasn't as broken in 
to feel yeah. slightly different. Other people, you know, I, you know, Phil Dignan, he would he would travel with his home seat post to races because he wanted that same broken in saddle. So it really does, you know, this kind of micro yeah, and yeah. macro adjusters. It it really is a it really is a true thing. And some people are so particular, and other people can just kind of get away with with whatever it yeah. is. Exactly. Uh, ben Swift once brought four dogmas. I think it's when you were the team actually still, and um, I, it was a Friday afternoon about now, and I was like, I really wanted to get home, and he's adamant that one of these um, saddle heights was wrong and the mechanics would say no we've measured them all they're exactly the same and i measured them three times with the the retail system you know which is about two mil accurate and i said ben i really can't find the difference and i was just standing there and i leant on one of the bikes by the saddle i thought hold on a minute i said which bike has the wrong saddle height? i said this one I said, is that a new saddle he goes yeah and that was it it was just brand new saddles <laughs> it felt higher <laughs> so you're absolutely right and that was fine then he just nudged it down two mil and off we go happy as larry <laughs> but um yeah and it's not just sometimes you think of being micro just as being a pain in the bottom but those people tend to feel the benefits of bike fare a bit more because they're so aware and so reactive to the environment where the harder people to sometimes bike fit are the macro absorbers because they can't really tell you much you know she says does that feel better let's go well it felt fine to begin with how do you tell uh, at that point, that, that's you have to really just go on your objective measures and say, well, look, that that now by the numbers looks better. We're just going to try it out and look at it. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that is something for, for people to be aware of is also, you know, things do wear. You know, your saddle does break in, you know, cleats do wear out yeah. regardless of which system yeah. you're using. So it's one of those things to be aware of, you know, and, you know, I, I would say the exactly. biggest the biggest thing with when it comes to cleats is, you know, marking your cleats on your shoe. So when you set them up again, it goes back to the original position that you had set up when you had someone bike fit. Because, you know, the minute you pop your cleats off and you haven't marked them, it's it can be, yeah, it's kind of like a shot in the dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the only thing I'd say on that is as well is if I do come across some people who are just really, really, and, and you just described it there, Nicholas Rose, but some people who are really scared of whenever they put new cleats on or change shoe and they've got to set it up and, and they get, like to paralyze to the point of inaction you know on changing something because they're so worried about it i do think some of those people maybe they should think well hold on a minute if cleat position is that relevant to you is something not right about the rest of the fit you know for is cleat position so reactive because for example you haven't got the right crank length on you know you've got to be right so cleat position it's it's disproportionately contributing towards your pain or discomfort you know so it there is a cleat position for everybody that's why speedplay works so well because they let you go. They just let you go where you want to go. <laughs> it's, it's much easier. So they say everyone's scared of speedplay, but the actual fact they they're really easy because you can't really get them wrong. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, yeah, and uh, and that's be, and what you can do is you can then dial off speedplay to almost no float in the end. And I'm sure you did that in, in over time. You know, just like dial it right there. We go. That's the place where I want to be, and it's different for everybody. You know, but you can just do that off that. I think we sometimes we're too scared of subjective feedback. Uh, often talk about this thing of comfort filter because there's you know, a really famous um, biomechanist called Benno Nick who had his uh, University of Saskatchewan in Canada, and Nike and Adidas sent all their sh- running shoes. Everybody knew about. They all sent them to him. He's got like 26 well-reviewed, peer-reviewed papers. Back in 2012, he gave his retirement speech, and he, he presented all this data. It's one of the funniest lectures I've ever seen. So he presented paper one, all the and it's all looking. All they wanted to know was what features about a running shoe correlated with, with um, reduced injury. And he'd done all this, massive studies, you know, 1,000 people in the U.S. Army, things like this, really good study. And he said, you know, the only thing I ever found that correlated to injury was how comfortable it was when they put it on 
And that is a subjective feeling. So he called, they call it comfort filter. So I often say that about, um, don't be scared if this, if you say that feels more comfortable, that is a real tangible worthwhile thing. Because it's assimilation of all these different sensory inputs that we can get and we say, that's more comfortable. And that's proof through research for that research. So comfort filter, yeah. So maybe we should be using more of that. Yeah, well, ultimately being being comfortable is is fast and it's going to you know allow you to you know, to ride more effectively and longer and without, you know, any worry of having any injury. I have one more yeah. final question for you. And this is kind of along the lines of, of subjective of all the people you've either worked with or just seen, you know, on TV or on the track, who is the most beautiful person you've seen on the bike? You know, cause there are some people out there, you just see them on a bike <laughs> and they're just like, Oh my, like they're just, they look so good on the bike. I am definitely not one of them. So I'm not, I'm, I'm all over the place, but <laughs> Who is the the most beautiful? <laughs> who's the most beautiful peddler? So, oh god, but you're really putting me on the spot there. We were talking about this yesterday. We're doing this documentary about the you know the French word souplesse, isn't it? About how someone pedals, and so a lot of people think Bradley Wiggins looks really beautiful because he's so high on the saddle and he's he sort of has that prancing horse foot position, you know, sort of like dress up sort of thing. But um, I thought I I'm gonna be quite, I'm gonna say Cancellara. I thought he looked really good on a bike, you know. He just looked superb. For bike handling ability, I think Sagan's just so far ahead of everybody. It's just, it's just what he can do on a bike is amazing. But I think Alaphilippe looks beautiful on a bike as well. <laughs> just so, and the current range, I'm sure there's other ones, you know. Um, in the bike thing world, people, bike fears always wanted to get their hands on Alberto Contador because everyone thought he had a terrible time trial position because he used to move backwards and forwards in the saddle. Um, but no one ever managed to stop that or change that. And I used to make the argument that, yeah, it looked ugly, but was he just self-optimizing, moving forward, 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 and then he got too far forward and he just moved back? And who's to say that's a, a bad thing, if that makes sense? So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he went he, he went he went plenty fast, and <laughs> apparently apparently <laughs> it worked for him. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, just a little analogy to finish with. I don't know if you remember that we used to have a really good uh, female uh, long-distance runner called Paula Radcliffe. And um, she, she world record holder for marathon for years and years, and and so on and so forth. But um, she used to, if you remember, she used to run, and her head used to go all over the place to one side, like shake, moving around all the time. And I know this for a fact. I know some of the scientists and physio work with, her, and they said at her peak, they said um, you can go this fast, but imagine if you didn't move your head around all the time, how much faster you might go by not wasting that energy and time doing that. So they taught her to run with her head straight, and she went slower and slower and slower <laughs> so you know some things just aren't beautiful but work <laughs> that's, yeah that's the way i'll leave it <laughs> yeah that's a, a perfect way to end it well and lastly how can people you know especially listeners in the uk where can they find you to come in and get a bike fit and you'd mentioned you have a book as well what is the the title of that oh yes the um, book's called uh, bike fit in fact i'm doing the second edition been out since 2014 i think now and, and that's i would point anybody there who's maybe international can't come and see us can't go for a bike fit but it's also i don't know 10 bucks on, on Amazon. And the best thing about that is you never make a huge amount of money out of books, but the feedback from it is fantastic in that I bought your book and I could sort my knee injury out, you know, just the same as someone's listened today in and they take a bit of snippet of advice and it helps. And that, that gives me a nice big warm feeling inside. And that's what the book's aimed at. So it could maybe help out somebody who, you know, getting into cycling, hasn't got a really expensive bike, doesn't want to pay a load of money for a bike fit. They might be able to, it, it's designed, it's there to help them. There's also a strength and conditioning book, which has a little algorithm assessment in it called strength and conditioning for cyclists. And that highlights all the things that you've mentioned, you know, 
um, if you can't do this, can't do that, and, and you need that range, how to get rid of it. So trigger point, boring, foam rolling, and talks you through programs and that. Uh, and if people want to come and see us, we're based at the Manchester Institute of Health and Performance, which is next to Manchester City Football Ground. And that's an amazing building. There's everything in it. It's going to even have a wind tunnel soon in it. And it's fantastic. Uh, my clinic and lab is in there. And that's so where we see some people who you know, try and realize people's better positions. But the other half of what I do is I'm involved with making better cycling kit and apparel so we use that area to help um, saddle companies such as physique design better saddles and we're designing um, new and innovative shorts and things like that so i'm trying to make cycling more accessible to all people at the same time as well awesome well phil thank you so much for your time and at some point i'll get over to the uk and i'll uh, come and try to optimize my position on well maybe i'll go for the more comfortable <laughs> fit now at this point in my life <laughs> yeah. well i I'd far rather come and see you in Vermont, actually, if I could, <laughs> and be mobile because it sounds like a wonderful place. But yeah, uh, you're more than welcome here, and I really look forward to our paths crossing. And thanks for having me on. Thanks so much, Phil. Well, there we have it, folks. Another episode of Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I am sure that you all took something away from my conversation with Phil Burt. He is a wealth of knowledge. And as he said, bike fit is not just for those looking to go faster and be more aerodynamic. It can help us all ride more comfortably, more sustainably, and of course, help us stay healthy and injury free. So with that, folks, I'm over and out. I'll catch you on the next episode of Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo.